And so, Holy Father, we come to that moment when, with Holy Scripture open before us, we ponder, we ponder what You would say. Turn our eyes upward. Lock them on the face of Jesus. With that upward gaze, surely all of us bells for the kingdom we can be. Let His voice be heard. Above all, we pray together in His name. Amen. May I share with you today a rather provocative premise. I need to tell you that I have been brooding over a single line in Romans 9 now for months. Literally for months. One line. And it seems the right time for you and me to to step up to that line. I'm going to tell you this. For me, at least, it is a radical premise. Okay? For me. I cannot speak for you. I find it a compelling premise. Call and a radical premise to engage our minds and our spirits and our hearts to the reality of God and His journey with us at this time in history. All right? So I want to take you to that line. The line is so significant, I want to, I want to get the line in writing before we even look it up in Holy Scripture. So would you take out, please, out of your worship bulletin, today's brand new study guide. Thank you, ushers, for getting those to everyone who got in. And, oh, I I, I didn't get a bullet when I came in. Just hold your hand up. We'll get those study guides to you right now. And those of you who are watching on television, let me put a website on the uh, screen for you. If you go to this website, www.pmchurch.tv, Pioneer Memorial Church, click on to a series. We've been in a series now for, oh, a, a few months so we've come to this. It's from the book of Romans. The title of the series is Wine and Milk. Study the book of Romans. This would be part 20. Click on to that. This particular teaching is entitled Journeying with the Jews. The next two presentations are that little mini-series, Journeying with the Jews. This one, When God Cuts the Work Short. Click on there where it says Study Guide. You get the study guide and you can go through the study guide with us. All right, let, let, let's just cut to the chase. Take that study guide, the very first line. We'll write it down before we even look it up. Would you write it down, please? In mercy, God calls a remnant for His mission. In mercy, God calls a remnant for His mission when in reality, He doesn't need them for His mission at all. We'll have to kind of stew on that together. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9. Find it, uh, please. I'm going to be today in a... I've never preached from this translation. It's, it's very new. It's called the TNIV, Today's New International Version. It is an update. It is a revision of the very popular NIV. Now, I've been going through it and actually quite amazed and delightfully surprised at the kind of upgrade it really is. I'm very, I'm very pleased with it. So today, we won't do it every day, but for today, TNIV. If you came without a Bible, let me put uh, a page number on the screen for you. You can take the Bible in front of you and open to Romans 9. That would be page 762, and that would be the New King James Version. That translation is so significant, I have to end with it. I won't be able to end with this. I will end with the NKJV, as you'll see in just a moment. So page 762, we're glad you're here. Uh, follow along with us. Okay, Romans chapter 9. Let me read it to you. You follow along, whatever translation you have. Paul speaking now. The giant summit, the windswept summit of chapter 8 is behind him, behind us all. Paul says, I have more to say. Here comes chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. 
I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What's up, Paul? What, what do you mean unceasing? Never stops anguish? What are you talking about? Ah, verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were cursed. The Greek word there is anathema. I wish I could become anathema. I wish I could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Verse 4, theirs is the adoption. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Verse 5, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, this is as emotional as you will ever find the brilliant mind of Paul getting. Oh, it's true. He becomes tender as he writes to his young son in the faith, Timothy. But here with gut-wrenching pathos, Paul weeps as it were in writing. Do you see that in verse 2? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I have known wives who have unceasing anguish over their husbands. I have known husbands who have unceasing anguish over, the, over their, their wives. I've known parents with the same and children. But this is, he, he has it not for a loved one. Why do you have unceasing anguish, i.e., my people, the chosen people? I'll tell you why. My people are lost. And I wish to God I were lost in their stead. I mean, come on, Paul, please. Do you have to be so excessively emotional? Give me a break. I mean, after all, all they are is a wayward community of faith. And come on, wayward communities of faith are a dime a dozen anymore. So what is all this intensity about, whoa, wailing and let me be lost in their stead? Please. Don't you think you're taking this intellectual sensitivity and denominational loyalty a bit too far? I tell you what, it's taken it too far in this generation. Denominational loyalty? What's that anymore? I know some circles where it is politically incorrect to show any loyalty at all to your community of faith. I am autonomous. I am just me and God. You know, maybe we could take a lesson from our Roman Catholic friends who unabashedly wept over their fallen leader and over the election of a new leader. Paul obviously is not apologizing. As he say in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Can you believe that? <laughs> Look, only twice in human history has an individual come to God and said, God, destroy me and save this community. Just like Moses. Paul is coming to God and saying, take my name out of the book of life and save my people instead. Talking about denominational community of faith, loyalty. Only twice. Someone exchanging his life. Except for three times, of course. Calvary. Calvary. Moses, Paul, Jesus. Take my life. I give it for the sake of saving my people. Ooh, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul groans over the terrible realization that even the chosen ones, get this, even the chosen ones can be lost. Apparently, you can have it all and still be lost in the end. 
Look at verses 4 and 5. What did they have? The Shekinah glory. They had it. The holy law and the holy Sabbath. They had it. The sanctuary worship. They had it. The prophets. They had them. The Messiah. They had Him. Apparently, you can have it all and still be lost in the end. And so Paul says, I am broken hearted. I recall the words of Richard John Newhouse. I may have shared these in the past with you. I want you to write them down. Uh, Fill in a blank here. Richard John Newhouse, God's chosen ones live out the drama and destiny of God Himself. It is a fearful thing to be chosen. Write it in. Chosen. It's a fearful thing. It is as though God enters history through His chosen ones. End quote. Hey, look, folks. I happen to know another people, another people not unlike Paul's Jews, who have it all, who consider themselves, because of that, the chosen ones. Would you write this down, please? The corpus of truth, write it in, they have it. The eternal law, they have it. The holy Sabbath, they have it. The promises, the prophecies, they have it. The patriarchs and prophets and kings and desire ages and acts of the apostle. In fact, the Messiah... They have Him too, only they call it the testimony of Jesus. They have it all. Paul groans over the terrible realization that even the chosen ones can be lost, which is why it is a fearful thing to be chosen. I mean, look at the very next verse, verse 6. It is not as though God's Word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Paul reminds us now of the obvious, which has obviously been forgotten. And that is just because you're a dues-paying, card-carrying, or should I say tithe-paying, Bible-carrying member of the community of faith does not guarantee anybody's salvation. I mean, how are the saved saved? Drop down to verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. In the words of Frederick Faber, there's a wideness in God's mercy Like the wideness of the sea, there's a kindness in His justice that is more than liberty. Mercy. In fact, would you write this down, please? Only the mercy of God can save the saved. And put that in quotation marks. The saved. Only the mercy of God can save the saved. Because chosen people obviously keep forgetting. Paul has to state the obvious. So, who of the chosen ones gets saved? Does God save them all? Drop down to verse 27 now. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. I read a couple books when we were out west this last week and weekend. One of the books has been very helpful for me in wrestling over Paul's treatment of Israel here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. In fact, next Sabbath, I want to share with you Oh, my. Some deeply stirring reflections on the divinely intended relationship between the Jews today and my own community of faith. Please don't miss that. That will be next Sabbath. Title of the title of our teaching next Sabbath, Journeying with the Jews. When chosen means choosing. The book is by my friend Jack Dukan who teaches here at the Theological Seminary at Andrews University. It's his latest book. It's entitled, The Mystery of Israel. In this book, he carefully notes the distinction between, in in Scripture, between Israel, the chosen ones, and the remnant. 
That happens in both the Old and the New Testaments, by the way. A very helpful for me a quotation. And so I have it. In, it's in your study guide, and uh, we'll read it here together. As Jack is writing here. The remnant are the faithful who within the chosen people will survive the test of God's judgment and who will ultimately enjoy the eschatological, the end time reward of salvation. God has had a remnant all through history. So he's speaking of all these ages. Now, we should not, however, and here's what was so helpful for me. We should not, however, identify the remnant with the chosen people. Not all of the Israelites were a part of the remnant. We're going to talk next week about Elijah, because Paul talks about Elijah, who's sitting there sobbing, whimpering, complaining. I'm the only faithful one left. And God says, what is your problem? I have 7,000 others who haven't bowed the knee or kissed the idol of Baal. So give it up. We'll get into that next week. So, uh, it, uh, Dr. Dukan's point is clear. Not all the Israelites were a part of the remnant. All the rest of the community was lost. And not all of the remnant belonged to the chosen people of Israel, end quote. Obviously, people outside the community, God considers his own. Paul's point here in Romans 9 is that God has always had a remnant on earth throughout history. They have not been defined strictly by their, by their dues-paying, card-paying, card-carrying membership in a community of faith. No, 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 no. In fact, Paul just said in verse 27, if you took every grain of sand along the seashore and turned it into a Jew, that wouldn't make him saved. It's not about numbers. Then what is it that will determine the remnant in the end? Put it another way. How can I, how can you be a part of this inner circle of the chosen ones? Drop down to verse 30, please. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But, verse 31, the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Verse 32, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him, speaking of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the one who believes in in him will never be put to shame. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please note it once again? No matter where you start in Paul, take any one of his books, the book of Romans included, no matter where you start with Paul, he will always get you back to the mighty ringing declaration of the Reformation. And that is we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. In fact, would you write that down in your study guide, please? Please make sure you get that. That is Paul's solitary passion throughout his writings. Write it down. The remnant are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. For that reason, I'm deeply concerned over a Christianized, monolithic system of religion that today is gaining unprecedented and uncritical hearing in our postmodern world. Thanks to the media, I might add a stunning and uncritical hearing around the entire globe these days. A monolithic system of religion that in fact is the very antithesis of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Notwithstanding that, the growing loud chorus of even Protestant evangelicals would seek to tell us otherwise. I am dumbfounded at the acceptance this system of righteousness by works is now receiving among the world's 
young, both secular and non-secular young. And nobody's, nobody's raising a voice. For that reason, I've begun work on what I hope will eventually be a carefully, prayerfully thought through apologetic that will challenge this monolithic system of belief, not through the apocalyptic prophecies which has been done for decades and centuries. No, 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 no. But rather through the heart of the everlasting gospel. If it can be shown that Paul and Romans and the everlasting gospel are indeed the gospel truth, and I believe it can be shown. And if it can be shown that in reality this monolithic religion's core teaching and belief system are boldly contrary to that gospel, and I also believe that can be shown, then does it not follow even postmodern secular seekers can be led, I firmly believe, to see the veracity of the gospel and the attractiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ and reject a counter system for what it is, a pagan counterfeit. Consider finally with me the profound line that is tucked away. We skip right over it. But this is the line I've been brooding over. I want to go back to it now. It's right there. Verse 28. Verse 28. For the Lord will carry out His sentence on earth with speed and finality. Now I want to read it again from the New King James Version. And it's in the study guide so that you would have the NKJV. And fill it in, please. For he, speaking of God, this is the New King James rendition. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short, a short work upon the earth. Now, you need to know that both the King James and the New King James translations are very faithful to the Greek rendition of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. This would be Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23. They very faithfully record it. Newer translations based on older manuscripts aren't so sure Paul meant to record, uh, quote, the entire two verses, so they quote parts of the two verses. I've been brooding, ruminating over the New King James rendition of verse 28. And as I've pondered it, I've wondered the implications. Now, let's go back to that opening premise just a moment ago. Remember, in mercy, God calls a remnant for His mission when in reality He doesn't need them for His mission at all. I mean, if God were dependent on human beings to finish His work, do you, come on, do you suppose the work would ever get finished? Yes or no? No. I mean, let's read it again in the uh, New King James here. For He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Consider the numbers if He does not make a short work of it. I've shared these numbers with you. Before, would you, would you write them in again, please? Remember, every second on this planet, four babies are born. Write in four, please. Every second, two people die. Okay? Plus four, minus two, gives you a net growth, write it in, please, of two. That means, that means every six days, a million human beings are added to the Earth's population. Write that in, please. Every six days. One million added. Every six days. That means every year, 60 million. Write in year. Every year, 60 million are added to the roles of the human race. Growing at this phenomenal rate, it is humanly. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I stress the word humanly. It is humanly impossible for any community of faith to finish the work. 
I mean, you think about it. Even if we reached and saved 60 million people a year, we have left untouched the six-plus billion core just to concentrate on the additions. Humanly speaking, the statistics are daunting. And then along comes Romans 9.28. And here's where I find such, such hope-filled comfort and reassurance. Along comes Romans 9.28 and something called the Hebrew Divine Passive. Now, I learned this from my, my friend Ranko Stefanovic, who teaches not in the seminary, but in the undergrad religion program here, and his commentary on the book of Revelation. It is interesting to note that Jesus' prediction regarding the gospel going into all the world is a sign about the end. That prediction, let's put it on the screen here, Matthew 24, 14. It's in the passive. It's in the passive. Passive means the verb acts back on the subject. So, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a... Witness to all the world, a testimony to all the world, and then shall the end come. That's what Matthew 24, 14 reads. That's how it reads. But the passive form here functions as the Hebrew divine passive. I.e., ancient writers would oftentimes use the passive form of the verb to signify that the action itself was going to be carried out by God himself. And so Ronco wonders in his commentary, could it be that in Matthew 24, 14 and Revelation 14, 6, could it be that that's why Revelation 14, 6 actually shows a heavenly being finishing the work? A heavenly being. Oh, you're saying that you, 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 you've taken out the, the human partnership with God? Not, a, not, not on your life. In fact, you won't have eternal life without that partnership. But the point is, could it be both Matthew 24 and Revelation 14 are declaring what in fact Romans 9:28 is overtly pronouncing and that is God will finally arise one day and say I've had enough I will finish this now Could it be A century ago it's interesting to note that that concept was in fact understood as being the teaching of Romans 9:28 Let me just share very quickly here as we put a wrap on this Let me just run some lines by you I think you have them in your study guide I saw that the quick work that God was doing on the earth would soon be cut short in righteousness and that the messengers must speed swiftly on their way to search out the scattered flock. All right. Here's another one. Back in 1906, the work will soon be cut short in righteousness. We must become more persistent and more devout in our efforts to carry it forward to completion. The time has come that we must not only be active, but we must concentrate that activity so as to make it tell. By the way, no sidestepping of the gospel commission here. No saying, hey, well, since uh, God's going to finish the work, we'll just sit back. No, impossible. You cannot have God's heart and not be engaged in God's work. You can't be, if, if, if a child says, Dad, you do all the work in the house, what's, what's the child saying? I'm not a part of this family. I'm not a part of your family. No, you must join with God. And that was clear. Let, let, this is dynamite. Now, here's, here's this one. Let me tell you, I'm quoting now, that the Lord will work in this last work in a manner very much out of the common order of things and in a way that will be contrary to any human planning. Interesting. Something unexpected. Not the common order. Keep reading. God will use ways and means by which it will be seen that He is taking the reins in His own hands. The workers, that would be you and me. The workers will be surprised by the simple means that He will use to bring about and perfect His work of righteousness. End quote. 
Isn't that something out of the ordinary? Simple. You'll be surprised. And by the way, if those words were written in uh, this generation, I'm sure the words would read, the time will come when God will slide himself into the driver's seat and seize the steering wheel and saying, I'm driving this for the rest of the way. Horse reins, we don't work with that. But the steering wheel, I know exactly where we are. I'm doing the driving from here out. There will be a series of events revealing that God is master. Master of the situation. One more. Great changes are soon to take place in the world and the final movement, rapid. Romans 9.28 For He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, I say hallelujah to that text. What do you say? I'll tell you why I say hallelujah. Because the finishing of God's work is not dependent upon you and me. Thank you, Jesus. For too long, we have made ourselves and our church the determinative factor in when the end will come, and we are not it. God is it. God is. Get off of this high horse that it's dependent on you. I mean, that is, that, that, that is, that would be hubris of the highest order. Pride has to be me. Oh, I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, I find great comfort and hope in knowing that overnight, overnight, God can finish His work just like that Himself. Which, by the way, is also a somber reminder that we need to be living now as if it could end tomorrow. You're playing with the human equation. Well, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. God says, I don't have to do a blooming thing. I'll take the steering wheel. I'll finish it myself. How then shall we live? In the words of F.F. F. Bruce, the saved remnant would thus be also a saving remnant. It's not enough to be saved. You've got to help in the saving mission. You see, if you have the heart of God, you're going to be plunged into the passion and work of God. Same grace that saved you, you must take that same grace to this world and help God in that mission, which, by the way, emboldens me now to abruptly interrupt your train of thought. Stop you right there. I'm going to, I'm going to change the subject totally right now. We need help in reaching our own community with the everlasting gospel on television. We are on three global satellite networks now, in fact, four. But while we are reaching the world, the sad reality is we are not seen on local television in Michiana. I want to tell you something. A few weeks ago, our media team stepped out in faith, asking God to open the doors so that we can be on one of our local television stations in South Bend beginning this September. They will provide a year's airtime on a Sunday morning for $900 a week. I need 90 of you. To pledge $10 a week to enable us to reach our own neighborhood with the everlasting gospel. Ninety. Just ninety of you. Ninety times ten. It's $900 a week to reach our community with the everlasting gospel that we are so passionate about. I used to worry about this. I used to say, you know what? I'm, not, I'm, I'm just not going to say anything about it. You know what? Too bad. 
I need to make an appeal to you. That's half a pizza, by the way. Half a pizza a week. Some of us could kind of live without that for a while. Half a pizza a week. Ninety of you. About a thousand people here. Just ninety. Ninety. Ten dollars a week. Just mark it on your tithe envelope. Television ministry. I want to help. I want to take the, I want to take the everlasting gospel to my home. Not just to the world. Those of you watching on television right now, I tell you what, I'd love to have you be a part of this. You just write to New Perceptions. Let me put, a, put an address on the screen. You just write to New Perceptions. That's our television ministry. Berrien Springs, Michigan, 49104. You just write to that address. If God is moving your heart to be a partner in proclaiming the everlasting gospel, I want to promise you every penny that comes in, every single penny, will be for airtime. Just mark a television ministry. We must reach the world and we must begin right here at home. Look, I know God will finish the work, but we must join that work. We must. And by the way, that would be $20 for a couple. There's not a discount if you're giving up half a two. So you count as two. Okay. All right. A group of teenagers, along with their adult leaders, have formed an international Christian organization called Teen Mania. Their mission to reach this generation for Jesus. And I just love their mission statement and I wish to embrace it as my own. It's in big, bold letters at the bottom of your study guide. Here's their mission statement. We will settle for nothing less than global domination for Christ. I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, of all churches in the world, of all universities in the world, it ought to be Pioneer and Andrews that would be at the forefront of seeking to establish global domination for the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We will settle for nothing less than global domination. Pat and Heidi, we are so glad to have you on the team. That's your passion. Help us, help this university to seize the moment, seize the moment. We will settle for nothing less than global domination. You know, sometimes we can become so preoccupied with how we wish it were at home that that is simply a, a, a subterfuge and a distraction for what, in fact, we were ordained and raised up for in the first place. We can't abandon mission while we're trying to fix ourselves. We can't. And sometimes, until we help the mission, overtly, passionately, we will settle for nothing less than global domination for Christ. Let Him, yes, let Him finish the work, but let us as a university community be about His work. What do you say? Amen. Amen. Oh, Father, though you can finish the work overnight if you have to, please don't. Don't let us not be partnered with you in what is the passion of all heaven, the saving of lost children for eternity. With your power and that passion, O oh God, send us forth, I pray. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever.